We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. We need you to change two things. This Bin Bin Laden character you have. Bin Laden. Bin Laden. You hear what it sounds like? I'm like, no. Um, Bin Laden, Aladdin. It's kind of like Aladdin. Um, And that's really too Disney for us. That's ABC. Um, Can you change the name? I'm like, well, he's a real guy. And they go, well, then what's his Al-Qiada? 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 You hear what we're saying? It's unpronounceable. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest. I am joined by writer Michael Frost Beckner, who is the writer of the film Spy Game. which is my favourite spy film. Michael also wrote the film Sniper, and he was also the writer and showrunner of The Agency back in the early 2000s, which was the first TV show to get access to the CIA headquarters, and it had direct cooperation of the CIA in some of its storylines. Regular listeners will know how much I love the film Spy Game. I have actually uh, been interviewed about it on Spy Hard. Spy Game influenced my own film, The Dry Cleaner. And so this interview is a bit of a milestone for me. And I really, really enjoy chatting with Michael. And I really hope you enjoy this too. So my recommendation, because this chat is a, a little bit of a long one, but not in a bad way. My recommendation is that you pour yourself a nice glass of scotch... Make sure it's no less than 12 years old and sit back and enjoy. And just before we begin, a quick shout out to Andy Bird. I just want to say a huge thank you to you for our Spy Game inspired music for this episode. Thank you. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you on. So just for the benefit of the audience, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your early career? Certainly. I knew I wanted to be a writer very, very early on in my life. Like I must have been in second grade and I just knew that's what I was going to do. And I sort of, so I stayed in that, but I, that moved me into the arts and stuff and, and, and theater and that sort of thing where you're, I, I love Shakespeare. And so, you know, I was doing that a lot in high school and stuff. Anyway, I, I got to the university. I went to USC in Southern California and they had started an undergraduate uh, novel writing program, which, uh, under a, an author named TC Boyle, he's, uh, quite famous literary author, and it was a great mentor to have. Uh, so I did that. I studied that, and I studied philosophy. And it came around time for my thesis. 
And so this was, it was, I was undergraduate, but it was a master's program. And so the thesis was I had to write a novel. And I was a senior in college. I'd finished everything else. Last thing I wanted to do was write 400 pages, like filling the page. So I found that they had another master's thing. They didn't offer it undergraduate. They do now, but in screenwriting. So I started to read a lot of scripts and I realized they all had one thing in common, very short, very narrow margins. So, okay. So I did that. And, and, and the faculty was great because they go, okay, wait, he's undergraduate, but he's doing a master's thesis. We'll let him do whatever he wants. This is, this looks good. Uh, I was trying to cheat. And uh, anyway, I took to it. I, I did fairly well. So I thought maybe I'll explore instead of writing a book, which I didn't want to do at the time, you know, being young and slightly frivolous. Um, so I kind of went, I, I got a job. Well, no, what I really did is I moved to Spain to do the Ernest Hemingway thing and didn't write a damn thing. All I did was <laughs> smoke and go to the bullfights and drink. And oh, That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Yeah, I, I met my first wife there. She was American, and we have two wonderful children, and she's lovely. And, and um, so it was really a, a great thing. But uh, anyway, then I got a job working for Barry Levinson. And that came about, I'd gone... I got an internship at, at Walt Disney. This is the old Walt Disney, not, not what it is now. This is when they had Walt Disney pictures and studios that were the kids stuff. Yeah. Then they had Touchstone Pictures, which was PG 13. They did a lot of romantic comedies and, and kind of light fare. Then they had Hollywood pictures, which was their R rated, uh, serious, more serious side. And I got a job in publicity there. And my job it was my first writing job. And basically, my job was in the still department before they had video press kits or internet or anything else. And I'd write, you know, I take the black and white picture that goes to the newspaper for the re-release of Song of the South. And I'd write, you know, Br'er Bear and Br'er Fox throw Br'er Rabbit into a briar patch. You know, I can't even say it. <laughs> um, and I'd stamp those. And my other job was taking the still 35 millimeter camera work off the set. Mm. And basically, I'd look at what they shoot every day, you know, on whatever set. And I'd cross out the one where people's eyes were closed. It was a monkey could do it. It was a, it was a intern job. Well, I get a call from Barry Levinson's assistant and a lovely lady named Marie Rowe. And she calls and she says, Michael, uh, Barry just wanted to thank you. You've made his job. He's, this was, he was making a movie called Tin Men with Danny DeVito and, and Richard Dreyfus and Barbara Hershey. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Pretty good movie. Yeah. And, uh, she said, you've saved him about five hours every night because he'd go through these meticulously. And after I'd done it for a couple of weeks, he just said, you, your eye was exactly like his and he doesn't have to do it. And, you, you know, it's great because he would complain about it. <laughs> and so we, we struck up a conversation and a friendship. And then Good Morning Vietnam was his next film, which he did for Disney. Mm. And he, um, he brought me in to, while well, they went and shot to run the offices at Disney, which suddenly his career, he'd done Diner and, and a couple other movies and then Tin Men. And it was starting to, to go in a, in a, a fast trajectory. Good morning, Vietnam, Robert, Robin Williams. And so his partner, a, a gentleman named Mark Johnson, who's a fair, fairly big producer. He, his latest biggest thing, I suppose, would be the, um, um, what's that show called? Uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, he wow. did all that and better yeah. call stall as a producer. Yeah. Mark Johnson, he's, he's fairly big guy. He knew I was, I was writing. And so he said, this is a perfect job for you. You can work as, as an assistant here. It's just you, the suite of offices. You got to read all the submissions Barry gets and, and, and talk to him about the scripts and, and, and the books and, and that sort of thing. And we want you to write. 
And just all, all I ask is just let me see the scripts you, you, you've written and, and that'll be great. So I did that for a while. Then my first writing job in film came with, with Good Morning Vietnam. Mm. And throughout, there's teletypes running. And you, you see the headlines of the war, how the war is escalating. Yeah. And so I always like to say that was my first thing. But you actually see the typewriter typing out what I'm writing. <laughs> you know, and, and that was kind of fun. And so their company got bigger. That was a big hit. It got larger and larger. Mm. Rain Man comes along. And it comes along at the time of a writer's strike. And so... Barry Morrow had written the first script and then Ron Bass was brought in and he'd done a draft and he changed it entirely. And Barry said, I don't, I don't like this one. I'll do the movie, but I want to go back to the Morrow draft. But the problem was it needed to be rewritten and there was no way to do it. And Barry couldn't write it because it's a writer's strike. I wasn't a member of the union. So every day I'd go and, and help him cobble together these two scripts and write it. And it was really where I got my screenwriting education. He's a brilliant writer. And, you know, I, he dictate, he pace around and just, just off extemporaneously off the top of his head. Mm. And I take the dictation. Then I'd go out, you know, spend a couple hours in the afternoon and type it up into screenplay form. And I turn it back in and then his red pencil would come. No, no, no. Oh, that's kind of good. No, no, no. I didn't say that. And I quickly learned a style that would be very, very close to his at that point. And that improved my screenwriting quite a bit because my training had not been in that format. So then Rain Man comes along, and all this time I'm writing, and I'm turning in scripts, and they're not really liking them. And I'm fairly prolific. I write a lot, and, and uh, so it's one pass after another, after another, after another. And then I write a movie called Sniper, and I don't turn it into him, because it's, it's about marine snipers in Panama, and... Uh, it's just not a Barry Levinson film. It was kind of dark and that sort of thing. So I go on my honeymoon and I get a call in the middle of the night, waking me up. Michael, it's Mark Johnson calling for you. I'm like, Oh no, what did I do? Did I leave some, <laughs> did I leave the coffee on? And, uh, and he says, so I was in your office uh, looking for something and I found this script you wrote. And I'm like, Oh shoot. And because I had not sent it, I'd, get, I'd send it to my agent and stuff. And he wanted to go out. He'd agreed. He'd said, don't, this isn't for them. And mm. you've gone to the well too many times. Don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, well, I, I meant to give that. He goes, you don't understand. We're buying it and making it a TriStar. And that's that's where things kicked off for me. So that's kind of how where I got. That's where was my first script. And, of course, you know, at the time. Everyone I knew, you know, gave me the, oh, you're so lucky you wrote a script. And they just saw that. I was like, what? I've been kicked in the teeth so many times in just, you know, the first five years of my career. But anyway, that took off. And that, I think they're filming right now the ninth, the eighth sequel to it. That, that thing has just been the little engine that could. Yeah. It's been, it's been going on a bit now. It's, yeah. On and on and on and on. And so it's, <laughs> I don't do anything, have anything to do with it after the first one, but I, I do like, <laughs> I do like the uh, the residual and the and the check for it every every Excellent. time. I caught the one where Tom, uh, not Tom Berenger, the um, Billy Zane returns, um, which I think must have been maybe the fifth or sixth one, but they're, they're, they're very enjoyable films. So yeah, 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 that was pretty good. Yeah, some of them have been atrocious, but some of them have been fairly fairly good. The second one, the second one was pretty good, but the plot was ridiculous. But the movie was fairly good anyway. Yeah, yeah it's it's been it's been a great pleasure to do it. And, you know, I'll always jump in and and. You know, it's, it's, it's 
the reason is it's my characters. And so mm. in the, with the Writers Guild, you always keep your characters you created if it's an original. So they'll always call, call say, here's what we're looking at, what you haven't had. You know, I'll, I'll shoot the breeze with them for, you know, a half hour, and then they go make a movie, and it's, you know, it's great. Cool, excellent. You also worked with um, Sidney Pollock, didn't you? And he, he obviously is famous for Three Days of the Condor, which I'm a huge fan of, and, uh, and obviously Robert Redford stars in that. Yeah. Are you able to talk just a little bit about that working with Sidney Pollock and when that happened? Yeah, that was really the the very greatest part of my career, and 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 it was a lovely thing. I started working for him um, after what had happened was after Sniper, which was a pretty good success. Um, after the the strike, because that happened all around the same time, they had no scripts, and you had all these this Japanese money coming in and investing in, in motion picture studios and building these mini these mini majors we had. Carol Cole, Largo, and they made a lot of these movies. So there was no product and a lot of money. And I was writing, I always write originals, or I did up to that point. And so I'd written a script called Texas Lead and Gold. And that went out to market like Sniper, but instead of being just, oh, this nice, you know, mid-range thing, it made quite a splash. It's never been made. Um, but it was the highest selling script to that point in time. Yeah. And and seven figures and 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 great when you're in your late twenties and suddenly, oh my God, I've I've made it as a screenwriter. And then I followed that up. Then I went back to Disney under contract and I followed that up with a script called Cutthroat Island. And that I doubled my record. And that was to star Michael Douglas, sort of a romancing the stone. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. um that one they did make Gina Davis. It was Michael Douglas and Gina Davis. He had to finish some movie. By the time he finished, she had married Rennie Harlan, mm-hmm. and he, as a he as a gift, said, "I'm going to make this movie." And she, unbeknownst to me and the Writers Guild, rewrote the script. But all she did was switch her character with the Michael Douglas pirate. Okay, yeah. And so she's the pirate, and he's kind of the slave girl, which Matthew Modine played. And and um, <laughs> it didn't really work very well. He he dropped out. He was very gracious about it because he could have made a stink and and um. He just said, you know, the last movie was too strenuous. Whatever. He dropped out. They went and made it. My eldest son, for years, he'd get his Guinness Book of World Records at Christmas morning, open it up, flip through to the biggest failure of all time, and go, Dad, you're still in the Guinness Book. It's it's considered the biggest <laughs> flop of all time. It's it, it was it was a disaster. Waterworld didn't that take over in the end? I don't know, but no, no. it didn't. I wish, <laughs> I wish it would. And and there's some been some flops recently. I think maybe it's moved out of the top spot. I should call my son and tell him hey, your dad's not such a failure anymore. So sons of four. Isn't it? So anyway, I done those. Yeah. And and because I was doing these action comedies, I got a lot of work writing those. Mm. And so they'd send me Lethal Weapon, and they'd say, "Here's Lethal Weapon three. Can you punch up the uh, action? We need more action." And I read it; it's jam packed action. I go, "What you're missing? I mean, I'm happy to do it, but it really won't help your script. You." you these characters don't live anymore. They're, it's just, they're puppets and they don't have any, stay away from the characters. Don't write character. You're not a character <laughs> writer. You write action. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop this right now. And I'd been working on a book, a novel called Spy Game. Yeah. Cause I finally realized that, you know, I was comfortable and, and I had time to write. And it was my first love was trying to write, a, a, you know, prose fiction. And I had another kid on the way. Uh, and suddenly I didn't have any money. And, uh, screenwriters careers go up and down with, with the, you know, you, you, you have to, you work one year, you get a big payday 
And then maybe you have a year off, you know, so you got to amortize it across a few years. They changed the taxes in California and federally, and then they didn't allow you to do that anymore. So suddenly you'd be paying a huge amount of tax on the big amount of money you got, but that would take all your your living money for the next year where you weren't going to be working. And so I thought, oh, shoot, I've made a colossal mistake. And so I lopped off the ending of that book and wrote it as a screenplay real quick. And I decided, and and I did the book because it was all character. It wasn't about action. Don't care about the action. Yeah. It was all about character. And I wanted to show people, you know, stop saying you write, just write car chases and gunfights. So lopped that off, wrote the script. People liked it, but everyone said, this is, this is, we can't make this. It's, this is terrible in that it's all guys sitting around a table. The two main characters never meet in the present. It's all flashback. That's a no, no. It's all voiceover. Yeah. And uh, so pass, 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 pass. Which is all the stuff I love, by the way. But anyway. Yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, you know, and then a, a company called Beacon uh, Pictures came, came involved. They just come off Air Force One. Mm. They got it. They got it just right. And in the meantime, my agent had been trying to set that one up because uh, I'd envisioned the script as Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And my agent knew Paul Newman. And he he loved it. And it was much more like the character in The Verdict. Mm. Uh, Nathan Muir was a heavy drinker, heavy smoker. All his divorces weren't cover wives. They were actual divorces like these people tend to get, some of them. Mm. And he said, here's the thing. I'm in every single scene. And my biography over the years, we've trimmed years off it. I'm a lot older than you may think I am. I can't do the full thing. He said, but this would have been perfect for me and, and Bob. Why don't you convince him? Set, get it to him, and you guys convince him, and I'll back you up that he should play the role that I would play, the darker role, and the and this thing. And Redford sparked to it. So Beacon comes in. They didn't know about that, but they'd had the same idea of, of Robert Redford. And so then that coalesced beautifully. It was really great. And then Pitt came in a few years later. It, it stayed in development for a while. Anyway, that script, like a lot of my work. I've had the great opportunity to work with some of the greatest directors ever. Directors like my my work and actors like my my work. And and a lot of the movies aren't as genre as the studios want. They don't have the gimmicks. They don't, you know, the original stuff that I write. But I tend to get jobs, you know, I tend to get sort of boutique jobs. An actor wants, Eddie Murphy always wanted to do a Western. He calls me and says, I don't want to, you know, make it funny. You're slightly amusing, but it's not a comedy. It's a Western. I want to do this. And so I'd go work on that, or Harrison Ford would want something, I'd do that. So Sidney Kapolik was one of those calls. So Sidney calls me, and he says, I'm in a bind. My, I want to follow up the firm with the night manager. And Robert Town had written the first adaptation, and he couldn't, he, he didn't, he and Sidney didn't see it the same way. Mm. And uh, John Le Carre is, is great, and, and, you know, he had David Cornwall, who's John Le Carre, or was, yeah. uh, working with him and really wanted to go Sydney's way with it, which was a little bit different than the book. And so he said, it's my game, it's the best script I read in years. Come in and have a meeting. And I think that first meeting ended up being probably four hours long with me and Sydney. And meetings are typically quite short. That's why I speak so fast. I, I you know, <laughs> said, And so Sydney, Sydney and I got on, along really, really well. And we... 
I pitched him an ending. I thought the, it needed a slightly different ending from the book. And he said, that's exactly what, what I think. And he said, let's see what, what David thinks and, and what we do. So I had a real, real great thing. I got to work with Sidney Pollack on that, but I also got to work with, I never met him, but, um, via fax, uh, retooling the ending of the book. And so we did that for a while. It was, uh, for a while, it was going to be Tom Cruise. It was going to be Paramount. Then Sydney's deal changed. However, I kept working with Sydney. He said, and he told me, he said, look, he gave me two good pieces of advice. He said, one, don't your career is you're, you're in the top 1%. He said, every office I ever go into has two or three Beckner scripts on the shelf. Don't you like to write? Don't worry about getting everything made. If you want to do that, you're not going to do that in features. You're really too literary and and that sort of thing. He said, it's going to sound weird, but he said, television is more literary than feature films. He said, in a feature, what we really do, and this was always been my philosophy in writing, is from the very first scene, you're writing the last scene. And you you have limited time to finish up that last scene. And in television, you don't want to finish it. You want to expand. You want to explore the lives of the characters. You want to dig in. And he goes, that's where you where you'll be. I had never had any desire to direct. And he said, this is where your forte is. And so we, we started to develop a couple things. We developed my series that became the agency together. Yeah. But then he said, I'd like to keep you on in reserve, you know, working with, he was doing a Warren Adler book called random hearts. He was going to do next. And then he did the interpreter and, you know, he would always, the studio would have their writer. They'd have the thing. He'd shovel it over to me and say, what do you, what do you think? And what would you, what would you do with this? And, and, and I'd help him develop those. And he moved me into television and he really, I, I really thought television. I didn't watch any because I, all I thought it was, you know, sitcoms. I didn't, you know, but you know, TV was picking up. ER had come in and, and, and there'd been some, some more, you know, serious shows with, with some serious writing. So we developed the agency together. Um, by that point, Night Manager had, had languished. He'd left Paramount and he was at Sony and whatever. And we, so we developed that. We also developed a series on the OSS. Um, I had been invited to join the OSS Society and we can get into that when we pivot. We'll get into that. Yeah. But the agency took, I didn't know that Sydney had cancer. No one really did. Hmm. But, you know, he keep telling, you know, the, the network said, if you direct the pilot, you'll do it. He said, hey, I hate directing. I don't want to do it. Brilliant director who's great at directing, and I hate it. Um, (laughs) And uh, so he put, he said, "Why don't you call your friend Wolfgang Peterson? He'd be perfect to to do this." So I called Wolfgang. I said, "Look, I got this this show, the agency, pitch it to him, send him my pilot, and then that that took off." And so Sydney, I was with Sydney. I think close to, to 10 years off and on. I would do my own stuff, but I was with him. He was really my main mentor in this business. Everything that I have become as a writer of, of film, uh, and TV is due to him. I had the foundation from Barry and, but really it was with Sidney Pollack. And, and, and I, you know, I look back and I, I've, I've been blessed. I've worked consistently and uh, with, on great projects and great adaptations and, and and great things, and like he told me, it's it's you love your writing, so love it. It's it's sort of the difference between loving your work or loving your career. And I love my work, and so I I, I like to work, and and I've been fortunate enough to always get a good job and get paid, and 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 be able to do my own original stuff. 
that's changed in in Hollywood. What I do isn't really what they want anymore. They want, you know, let's make Captain Crunch the movie. Let's do a something that product. Let's do a, a superhero. Let's do a comic book. Um, let's do a newspaper article, but they don't really want original stuff. So all those original voices like the Billy Wilders and stuff that we had, mm. um, Robert Town and that sort of thing, that kind of writing and that type of entertainment in film has mostly gone away. It's, it's gone into this, the independent, small independent films, but the large film that is, is the, the really great, like, well, the really great, like the sting, um, it's just that it doesn't it doesn't exist anymore, and 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 um, it'll come around. Everything I've been in this business long enough to know everything has cycles. But for right now, it it moved from when I started. It was the David Putnam's running studios, Academy Award producers, um, Simpson Bruckheimer, and and um, then it moved into the distribution heads. They took over the studio head job, and then it finally moved into marketing knows best and marketing runs the studios. And, and so, um, but you see some places where they're getting more creative people in there, but, uh, it kind of dwindled. The creative people all moved to television, which, which yeah. is where I, you know, my second half of my career went. Yeah. Well, let's go a bit into, so your, the films I'm familiar with and obviously your TV shows are all sort of espionage based. We talk about the agency. And Spy Game, which is, you know, my favorite, it is my favorite spy film. Um, unless somebody makes me better, it's my oh, favorite spy film. So I, I love it. <laughs> I think it's a great film. And uh, I've been very enthusiastic about it for many years now. So I wanted to sort of find out a little bit about how he came to focus on espionage as a topic, because it's a topic that deeply fascinates me. And I've now been running this podcast nearly seven years now, crikey, um, talking to sort of people and stuff in the world of espionage. So how how did you come to focus on this topic? You know, it's strange. <sighs> There's a, a few ways to, to look at it. One is when you start writing and you're in your late teens and you're starting to think about it seriously, at least for me and other people I, I went to school with, they're always saying, write what you know. Mm. And most people at that time write about high school, <laughs> write about college yeah. hijinks or, you know, what they know. And I realized fairly early on that somehow I knew a lot about this. I did know that that world wasn't James Bond or Mission Impossible. That's not real. That the real way it, it, it works is entirely different. And they really hadn't been making movies or, or the books. You know, there's a lot of books to do it. You have John Le Carre and you have uh, some of the others uh, that write the more literary spy fiction, the more character oriented spy fiction. And I realized growing up, there were a lot of people in my life, you know, you'd have Christmas or you'd have uh, a family event or a funeral or something. And, and you end up talking with things. And I've always been somehow able to get people to, to reveal stuff. There was a family friend, older man, uh, flew B-26s in, in Korea and his family was, he had got nine children and they, they were all a little bit disappointed in him because he was never home at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, and, but he wasn't in the military any longer. So what's, what the heck's that all about? And they, they didn't know, they didn't know much about his combat experience in Korea. But when I talk to people about stuff, I'm more sort of not interested in what did it feel like to be shot at or drop bombs. I'm more interested in, in where, where their heart was, you know, what, what, what did it feel like missing your family and stuff? And I, I, ever since I was a kid, I've been able to get people to open up on this sort of thing. Hmm. And in in that that story, you know, there was a, his one of his daughters was moving to New York to become a literary agent, and and she had much older brothers, they were much older than me, 
And I'd been talking to the father, this, this pilot, uh, old, old fighter bomber pilot. Um, and he was, he was telling me everything. I didn't think it was anything unusual. You know, you have all these kids, they must know. And, and the older son started to come and sit and just sit and listen. And I was leaving and they said, you know, Michael, you've given us a great gift. He's never spoken to us about any of that. We'd ask him. And that's when I realized I go, we'd ask him, what did it feel like to fly bombing missions? No one wants to talk about that. Mm. You know, that's a very small part of what it feels like to, to be in the service of that. But the one thing. And the one revelation as I came to, he wasn't home at Thanksgiving and Christmas is what he'd do every year he, after, you know, he was, he was in the reserve. He'd volunteer to go wherever there was a hot zone and let somebody stack their guns and he'd go fly their missions so that they could be home at Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and, and that sort of thing. That's the kind of story that interests me. It's not the mission. It's the man and it's, and it's, and it's the character of people. And so anyway. I'd realized very early on, somehow a lot of people I talked to um, when I was a kid talked to me about these sort of things, being in these foreign countries and, and espionage. A lot of them drank. There was a lot of drinking um, in my family and the extended thing and, and going on. And as I slowly, my dad was a, a professional athlete, so he had nothing to do with this. His father was quite a character. He, he, he'd started off, you know, back in the teens, I would guess, as a cop, a detective for Southern Pacific Railroad or something, you know, something like that. Mm. He moved up in police work uh, and started to work for the state. Um, then he became um, involved in intelligence revolving around narcotics. And this would be about the time of the Second World War. Then there's, I don't know much what happened. And then later he was like head of narcotics for the state of California. And there was a kind of foggy part around the wartime. When I was a kid, you know, when there'd be an event, his friends would be there and they'd all be in the back kitchen at the sideboard, drinking pretty heavily and, and trading war stories. I just go listen. And so I realized with the right what you know, I knew a lot of stuff that didn't seem like anyone was telling these stories. So I started to write those stories. Later, uh, as I became an adult, I have an older brother. He studied, what did he study at school? International relations, a, 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 a typical degree. The same shares the same first name as my father. Anyway, he's off at college, getting ready to graduate. He'd spent a lot of time in Europe um, as a young man. And one day I'm coming home to visit, I'm probably bringing my laundry back to my mom, to be honest. And the little old lady, a few doors down, she says, oh, Johnny. She thinks I'm my brother. Everyone liked my brother better. Um, no, Mrs. Clark, it's Michael. Oh, no. She said, oh, Johnny, those nice men came by. I said, no, no, it's Michael. She said, oh, I had the best conversation with those two nice men from the government uh, who came and asked, wanted to know everything about uh, John and and your family. And, and I thought, that's pretty weird. What's my brother gotten involved with now? And I came to, my dad says a few weeks later, he goes, Michael, look at this envelope. This is a little bit weird. He'd, he'd opened a piece of mail for my brother accidentally because it was addressed to John Beckner. And that's the same. And I, and it says your application to the Central Intelligence Agency has been accepted. Come do this. That, and the other. I go, bad. Yeah, John's a letter in the open. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he goes, no, he goes, well, I want you to look at something else. This came with the regular mail drop today, but you know, it, there's no stamp on it. Just a little, a little scratch where, where a it would have gone through a machine and gotten into the mail system. And it was no stamp because I find this really odd. So did someone, you know, tap the postman as they slip this in the mail or how are they do, you know? 
So I asked my brother, I go, so Johnny, he goes, I don't know what, uh, what you're talking about. That was uh, a thing. And it, it, and then suddenly he becomes at 22, a defense advisor in the house of representatives or something. Like, what the, he never was in the military. What's going on there. And then quickly after that, he moves to Europe. So we started to piece together that maybe he wasn't in politics and maybe he was, he, he started to work with helicopters and anti-submarine warfare. How I, who knows? He didn't have any experience in any of this. And then it would always be when there'd be some hot spot you'd hear about a week later, I'd be taught my brother and I are pretty close. I'd be talking to him because oh, I got to go to Kosovo. I got to put these cameras in these Apache helicopters and this sort of thing. What, what's in Kosovo? What are you talking about? And it would seem like he was always, or he'd call and he'd say, just tell mom that bomb that went off in Egypt, I'm safe. I'm perfect. What are you doing in Cairo? What are you talking about? And then I'd be writing and I'd share, I always share everything. He's my biggest fan uh, with my brother. And he, and he'd always say when I'm writing about it, he goes, no, it's, it's not like this. It's like that. Or it doesn't look like that inside Langley. It looks like this. Mm. And I'm like, John. You obviously that you did accept that invitation and, and no, no, I didn't. He goes, I did a briefing there once and this, that, and the other. So that went on and on for years. And, and he, he now runs a, uh, out of, out of London, actually, he has a business, um, and he does, uh, he captures, uh, satellite communications and fights terrorists and pirates and that sort of thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, but, uh, he'll, he'll to the day he dies and no, I never did that. When I started working with the CIA, um, they basically, they always say we can't confirm or deny. They just said, we're not going to tell you, which was basically their way of saying, eh, probably, probably he's, <laughs> he's with us. It, it, yeah. And so that gets to how did I start working with them, all these other people? And I always thought when I was a younger man, I thought, God, I'm so industrious. And so, you know, I was so, it was so easy for me to, to call and get someone to talk to and, and to get in, get in with these people. And, and then I'd have these great coincidences where I'd meet someone, you know, at a, at a bar, uh, or, you know, some, you know, where you'd meet people who just so happened to be retired from the agency. And how, you know, how does this happen? This is around the time of sniper. And, and I always thought I did a really good job penetrating the CIA and getting this whole, whole thing with the agency. I think I was the first series or, or TV or movie to shoot there. And mm. I knew all these, these retired and active, uh, officers. I always thought it was me. And then I, as I look back, I think, you know, it wasn't me. I don't think I'm actually, that's the CIA. I mean, seriously, some 30 year old writer is going to get in there and, and start accidentally meeting all these people who has just so happens to have a brother who in some form works in intelligence. And I remember it's before the internet. Uh, so I'd, I'd call my brother a lot. He's always lived in Europe and we talk about stuff and, and halfway through when talking about something I'm writing, if I'm writing, I did a movie for Jerry Bruckheimer. They never made it, but at Disney about the Mossad air raid on the Osiric reactor in Iran, oh, and the, okay. the, the nuclear pool facility yeah and um and that was great i worked with the Mossad, and i went and it was right during the gulf war it was kind of exciting to to go over there and meet the pilots and 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 do this sort of thing but the film i did notice in top gun jerry bruckheimer's film this last one that raid they do is a duplication of that osiric reactor bombing and he always was he loved it jeffrey katzenberg and michael eisner did not want to make a movie about the Mossad blowing up an Iran reactor. So I'm glad he finally got to do, do one. It was quite good. But, um, 
anyway, a lot of these times you're talking to people, they'd stop and they go, and this is for your movie, right? And uh, yes. And I'm like, well, we're talking a conversation because, you know, the echelon computers with the NSA out of Fort Meade pick up all those trigger words. If you, if you use enough of these words, it'll, you know, you, the computer usually just spits them out and just goes, it's just they're talking about nuclear bombs, not a terrorist. But if you talk too much about it, it, it gets down the chain till it gets to a person and people with clearance and stuff don't want to be, you know, tagged, flagged by a human at the NSA going, why are they talking about this? <laughs> anyway, so I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to people about espionage and that sort of thing. One day I get a call and, and because this is when it all started right after this. I get a call and they say, I think this is before caller ID. If there was caller ID, I didn't have it. So I picked up every call. Um, we're from Time Life Books and we want to offer you a free series of books. Um, and here's the categories. And they listed some, you know, the wild, the wild west, the third Reich, you know, whatever time life, you know, they put out these big, big books, photo books and stuff. Mm. They said, but we're thinking of doing one about the CIA and we wanted to because, uh, I don't know what their reasoning was and why I fell for it, but they said, do you have any interest in that? I guess that's all it was. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm a writer and I, I, I tend to write about espionage. And and they said, well, we want to just ask you, we're developing it. We'd like to ask you, a, well, they asked me questions for about, I don't know, an hour and a half. And sort of towards the end, they're asking me, well, are you a patriot? Are you a like personal questions that have nothing to do about some book series they're doing. But uh, I never got the free series. I never got anything else. And I kind of put it out of my mind. Years later, I realized that wasn't time life calling me. That was, it was stupid. They were, they were vetting me. And because shortly after that, I started to bump into people and they'd funnel me story ideas and that I go pitch and sell and, and I I'd, I'd write these scripts. And so that started to build where it really changed for me is I was invited to a lunch with a couple, Tony and John and Mendez. Tony Mendez uh, Argo was based on his life. He was the one who rescued. He was chief of disguise. She he, he passed away recently, sadly. Um, Jana followed him as chief of disguise, and we became very close friends, family friends. I spent we'd spend Fourth of July uh, every year at their house, and and um, really became very close. We, we we have children the same age, but they really sort of got me really deeply involved in writing about espionage and really were there for me at everything. They're offering me so many ideas. And anytime I'd write and stop calling my brother, I started calling them and they were very encouraging. They'd meet, introduce me to people. And suddenly I just really had gotten deeply immersed in that culture. Um, at the same time, I was invited by the OSS society to join. I'm like, well, why? It's for former retired OSS officers and they're children, spouses. Well, we just, you, you seem to know a lot about it. You seem to treat uh, CIA favorably in your writing. Um, Spy Game had not come out, but it was a script that it had made it around. And so I started to do stuff with them. That's when I started to develop that OSS story with Sydney. So it just kind of snowballed from there because it was a great source of stuff. They respected or appreciated that what I'd write really was about the people I wouldn't write John Malkovich in, in the line of fire. Oh, the crazy CIA assassin or, you know, they're always doing bad thing. It's early on. They told me, they said, you know, here's the thing. And you seem to capture it. There's good and bad people in every organization. There's the people that work and the people, like I said, that, that follow career. The career people usually are after their own personal gain and power. The people that work are after the job they do. And, and they have a dedication to that. Um, what we don't do is we don't hire bad guys. We, we really vet them. We, we hire the 
real true patriots, white hat people. Um, but what we like about your writing is you res- you respect that, but you also see intuitively that those kind of people are the people that betray, put on a black hat. And they said, and here's how it works. When you start out, you, you're given operations or work that this is mostly clandestine operations and not intelligence necessarily, though, though you have that as well. It's white hat stuff. You're never thrown into anything right off the bat that's gray. So you're always looking at, at an operation from the position of that white hat. And you know where the black hat is. And you know in the middle is a gray hat. And as you progress and, and you you get, you develop more trust with, with the seventh floor, you're given things that go a little bit closer to that gray hat. And so while they might not be purely white, you know exactly where black is. And you know that gray is sort of the, the line. That's the Clint Eastwood hat. Yeah. Cowboy hat, you know, the, the, out, the outlaw he always played or whatever. And some people, they'll cross that into where it's dark past gray. But you always are able to say, well, yeah, it's, it's not actually morally correct and it's not ethically good, but the, I'm not wearing a black hat. I'm fighting the black hat. Yeah. And when you go home, you put that white hat back on. Some people and, and the very rare ones that, that get missed, they don't ever walk back. The white end of that scale slides down to the gray hat then starts to slide into the darkness and your moral compass or the sliding scale of morality suddenly what you see is white. Everyone else would say, hey, that's charcoal gray, baby. Yeah. And black is, well, I'm not doing this. And that's kind of where I look at writing characters and creating them. Is Are they able to take that hat off when they've done something in the in the charcoal area and put back on the white hat? And, and sadly, through my experience, a lot of them, while they can put on the white hat, that gray charcoal dust stays on their soul. And and many of the people I've, I've worked with and, uh, um, you know, have had bouts of alcoholism, numerous wives, um, disenfranchised from their children. And that's kind of where, where I came with Nathan Muir. Nathan Muir is modeled after maybe one guy, but it's really the compendium of a lot of the, I mean, there's people that are perfectly normal and socially, they don't have any of those problems and they, they do great jobs. And I know them too, mm. um, a, a heroic, wonderful people. But I picked the facet of the people that kind of get crushed by it. Mm. And Nathan Muir is a character that's kind of been crushed by it. And how he's, ne- you know, how he, you lie to yourself and kind of think, I'm always putting that white hat back on when I go home, but maybe you're not. And that's kind of where that character developed out of, um, for that movie. And, uh, the interesting thing is the guy he was based on, I spent a lot of time in my youth, um, in the seventies backpacking in the high Sierras. And at the junior high school I'd gone to, there was a, uh, a coach there who was a smoke jumper and, and mountain rescue and that sort of thing. And he got it, was able to put together these trips. I don't think nowadays they'd let you go with a coach for, you know, three weeks on the John Muir trail, but we did that. And, um, he served in Vietnam and he had these great stories and, you know, no phone, no anything up in the, up in the high Sierras campfire. He'd, he'd tell these stories and I was mesmerized by his storytelling ability and I always, that's when it crystallized that I bet I can do this. I bet I can write stories and, and tell stories. And uh, he'd said that his job in Vietnam, he'd tell these stories. He'd fly in with the medevac helicopters to a hot zone. And um, his job would be, he and his team would be to secure a perimeter while they loaded the uh, wounded and dead. And then the helicopters loaded and all those guys that got off to secure the perimeter, they waved goodbye and they got to hump it out on their own. And he told a lot of these stories. Well, anyway, 
I didn't see him, you know, after I graduated junior high, I didn't see him for 40 years. And uh, it just so happened I ran into him a couple weeks ago. Uh, it, uh, I, I saw this guy, I heard the voice. He's in his 80s. And I go, that's, that, that's Coach Hensley. And I walk over and, and he told me, it was quite, quite interesting. He said, and, and I told him what I was doing. And he, he's, he was a big fan of, of Spy Game and Sniper. And so he was thrilled that I'd, I'd done that. And, and, I, and I told him, I said, you know, you kind of inspired me with your stories because he was Nathan Muir. He had those kinds of stories um, or he had that and he had that kind of um, kind of dry humor and, and that sort of thing that Nathan Muir has and that sly attitude that Redford brings out very well. Anyway, he said, well, you know, you were kids and, and uh, I couldn't really tell you what I said. I wasn't exactly doing what I told you. I did do some of that. But I actually was in Laos the whole time and I worked for the agency. That's why your, your, your films have, I've, I've been attracted to it. So it's been great to reconnect with the real Nathan Muir, who was, who was the, he was the, the, the part of Muir with the real, where the, the real strong character, the strong ethics, that backbone that Muir has that even though he does dirty stuff and he's willing to lie about anything or any, anyone, he at his core is a good man. And that was what Coach Hensley is a good man. And so that's kind of where Nathan Muir came out of. Yeah, I think that's what makes that his character so compelling. Can you talk just a little bit about sort of Tom Bishop? Because um, he he obviously is this character is on that journey trying to discover because he's a white hat trying to figure out if he could be a gray hat or not, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Tom Bishop developed uh, when I wrote Sniper. I got the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Marine Corps snipers, and you know, I, I again the shooting shooting someone, I can figure out what that's like. I, I uh, it's. You can figure it out. I, the war stories don't interest me. It's really, what does that do to you? It's a little different. I mean, it's not just right jumping up out of poking your head out of a foxhole or around a wall and and firing your your M sixteen. You know, you're really you're you're creeping in. You're stalking someone like hunting game, mm. and then you make that decision. You know, I think there's a line in there. You do I let the guy take one more bite of the apple? A guy named Tom Farron, who was a uh, scout sniper in the Marine Corps, and I think he 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 founded the scout sniper. Uh, school or maybe retired scout snipers. He, he was a great guy. He introduced me to all of these great snipers going back to some of the real old timers in the second world war and Korea and that sort of thing. So anyway, these are all a different breed and they look at things with a real, real sort of, it's funny, but a sniper with that pinpoint accuracy, their, their minds and their character seems to focus that way. They draw deeply into something they, they observe and then they pinpoint. And that's a rare, it's a rare quality. It's a little, it, it creates for a little bit of oddity in them because they don't sort of have that social middle ground. Um, and they're always looking for it. Now, what's very interesting, if you look at the, the, the pers- interpersonal dynamic, which is always fascinating to me and probably why I've had so many children and wives or ex-wives, obviously, <laughs> um, is that they're the ones that all seem to have, have stayed with the same wife and family. And through a lot of their trauma, all of them have PTSD than every single one I've met, mm. um, exception of one Navy SEAL I've met recently. He doesn't seem to have, have suffered any. But Tom had told me once, he said, you know, here's the thing. He goes, when you're there, it doesn't bother you at all. You, the first day in Vietnam, you get there within the first few, you know, few hours, you're going to see someone killed, you know, if you're thrown right into combat. Um, and they're killing us. So I'm going to go out and kill them. So it didn't, it, it didn't, I didn't have a moral thing. It's what I did. And, um, you know, it's the same thing as, as jumping out of your foxhole. And he said, but this is the 
late 60s or mid 70s through the through the end of the war. He said in the 80s, he had a double tragedy. His father died in a car accident. I could be getting this wrong, but his double tragedy where he lost his mother and father in a short period of time. And that, that, that hurt him psychologically. But what really happened is every night he'd go to bed, he didn't dream about them. He saw every face of every person he sniped in his career. And he, he had 28 confirmed kills. He, at the moment when they realized that they were going to, that just that split second that only your brain can file away and you actually can't recall it naturally because death had become something real to him with the death of his parents. And suddenly the death of all those people had some sort of precious value to it. And so that's not in the movie Sniper. And a lot of that other stuff is not in the movie Sniper. But I felt there was a lot more to draw from that character. And especially Nathan Muir operates in the middle real well. He's very good at playing the, the people on the top and people on the bottom. He can associate with any anyone. He can engage in that up-close, up-front way in, in you know, writing and things. Tom Bishop's the exact opposite. He has a very difficult time engaging in an upfront way, in a close person-to-person way. He's long distance or pinpoint accuracy. And that pinpoint accuracy thing is, he's the kind of guy morally who doesn't leave a lot of, he doesn't care about the distance between one thing. If I, if I think this, it's this. If I know this about something, if I believe this. And he doesn't go through that middle ground very well. Uh, and so that's, that's where it is. Again, he's a composite of all those snipers that I dealt with. And then, then other paramilitaries I'd, I'd, worked with with the CIA. And when I say that, I didn't work for, you know, after the agency came out and after Spy Game was success, they they both came out. Spy Game had been written years before, but it, they came out in 2001 with, along with the agency. There's a lot of, I get mean letters and a lot of stuff on the internet, which was just blossoming, um, that I was a stooge for the CIA. Maybe I was, you know, now I, I look back and I think, eh, they kind of used me. But I, I was happy to be used and I was a patriot and, and wanted to work but I did work with them a lot. I, I was back there every two weeks. I'd be in Washington and, and go into Langley, uh, meeting people, getting stuff. They advised on on all my stuff, and it became kind of a, a, a symbiotic attachment. Um, they are very good at making you feel like you're very special. Um, they give you just enough that it, it keeps you wanting more. So then 9-11 happened. So I wrote the agency. In maybe May, I finished it, May of 2001. And I'd sold that to CBS and the, in the, with Wolfgang Peterson. And the pilot was quite good. And the series did, did pretty well for a few years. The reason why is because uh, it was about bin Laden attacking the West, Al-Qaeda attacking the West, and the CIA retooling for a war on terror. And that was in May of 2001. And I remember going into the offices at CBS is we're making, we're making your show. You, you've hit the home run. That's great. We need you to change two things. This bin, La- bin Laden character you have. Bin Laden. Bin Laden. You hear what it sounds like? I'm like, no. Um, bin Laden, Aladdin. We, it's kind of like Aladdin. Um, and that's really too Disney for us. That's ABC. Um, can you change him? I'm like, well, he's a real guy. And they go, well, then what's his Al-Qiada? 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 You hear what we're saying? It's unpronounceable. There's no such thing. How could he be a real guy? You know, and, and like, this is all real. And then so this is May of 2001. They said, um, we have a newsroom right down there, CBS News. They've never heard of any of this. So, and I, and I didn't change oh it. I, I kept it in there. 
And then we had a problem because we film it. We have, he attacks the West. Um, I had, sorry for, for picking on, on England, but I thought his attack would come in, in Great Britain. I didn't think they could penetrate the the U.S. So the agency pilot was, he attacks Great Britain. It's the same thing as as 9-11, but it was in Great Britain. And it was to air on September 21st. Well, 9-11 happens. Mm. And suddenly, Les Moon visits CBS, says, should we do this? And he and and Wolfgang Peter said, no, we can't show it. I said, this is absolutely what the country needs. We need, our guides do win the day. There is an attack. But we we win and 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 it gives hope. Yeah, you know it, it's like going and watching. Um, they were expendable or something in, in the Second World <laughs> War or, or, or yeah. Baton or something. You you, you kind of need those movies. But we held it back. We went with a different one for the pilot. But the one thing I I look back on is what the hell was the CIA doing with me and doing letting us film there? George Tennant is you know wanted to be an extra in the background which he was oh, in, did he? in one of the scenes it's, <laughs> yeah it it is and then we were having CBS and the CIA they have uh, their big theater there is called is called the dome it looks like the Cinerama dome in uh, Hollywood and Vine and it looks like that but it's in miniature um and we were having our premiere <laughs> there and i have if you look on the wall back there is the invitation i framed it this it's oh, the cia and cbs invite you to the premiere of the agency please rsvp by september 11th 2001 it says it right there oh, and that encapsulates the whole thing what yeah. the heck were they doing screwing around with Hol- with cbs television and me mm. and and oh you got a reply by september 11th because on the 12th we'll be busy i mean it's it's really they had their eye, eye off the ball i mean it it Someone had their eye on the ball because they said to write about bin Laden when no one else cared. But so I guess that, that worked. But throughout that series, though, I kind of got a reputation for writing predictive espionage. And that's kind of where Sniper developed. Sniper, I said, in Panama, and they were all ready to go with it. And they said, we don't have, we didn't, we haven't invaded Panama. I can't, this is the head of TriStar. I can't make this movie. We haven't invaded Panama. We don't have bases there. We don't have these Marine snipers there. I go, Give it six months. We're going to invade Panama. And I've always been able to to kind of piece things together and see to do that sort of thing. And so with the agency, I think we predicted three or four more events before they happened. And that's the show. That's why the show is the only show to beat ER in prime time. But what I realize now, thinking back on it, is they were feeding that to me. So I do an episode where the Predator drone, which was just a surveillance drone, um, they rig it to fire a hellfire missile and take out a, a rogue Pakistan general. And then lo and behold, and they gave me that whole storyline. They go, well, what if you could, you could put a hellfire missile on a predator? I'm <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so I write this thing. We have this show, good ratings. The American people have seen it. Three weeks later, they put a hellfire missile on a, on a, on a predator drone and they kill a Pakistani general. And I realized I'm not predicting anything. They're just kind of using me. Well, it's the war on terror. So I'm thinking I'm doing the right thing and it's a good thing. I've come in in later years to kind of think that we were sold a bunch of BS on on Iraq and and Afghanistan and and it's really all about I think it's really is what Eisenhower warned of. It's the military industrial complex. They exist to sell weapons and to sell war. And they're the the front runner, they're the guy on the ground, they're the guy in the front, the agency and you know, it's big business. It's you, 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 a, you have the whole arms industry. Then you have the whole industry of rebuilding these places. We, we bombed the shit out of, you know, rock's a good example of that. Yeah. A rock is a huge example of that. Yeah. 
And so I was kind of, I, I now look at things a little bit differently than I did 20 years ago, where the officers and the people, they're usually white hat people. They do some, some cruddy stuff sometimes or, or asked to do it, but they weigh the value and they, and they do hopefully the right thing. But I think that the political organization, uh, and, and the whole thing maybe isn't all about democracy and, and peace and freedom. I, I think maybe there's a lot of other layers that are about politics and power and money. And so my characters in Spy, and maybe I was already thinking that a little bit um, when I first created Nathan Muir, that what we went to fight the Cold War over, and it was a good deal. It was it was Cold War. It wasn't Iraq. It wasn't Afghanistan. It stayed, but we had some proxy wars in the middle of it. But, you know, we, we, we managed not to let Russia invade Ukraine back then. Um, they had Ukraine, but you know what I mean? They Poland or West Germany. And anyway, I think maybe w- what the Cold War, the reasons they fought for and, and the way they fought is a lot different from what they do now. And, um, maybe in South America and Central America or just to say in Latin American sphere, they've always done it the way they do now. But Europe and, and the first world sort of had a different, different way of doing things. And now I don't, I think it's, it's sort of the way Latin America is handled to me. I haven't talked to anyone. No one's told me that. And I could possibly or entirely be wrong. But I do think it's changed. And so that's where Spy Game, I saw that then. And that's who Nathan Muir was. Nathan Muir was that dinosaur who kind of saw the old way of doing things. And yeah, we did, we did dirty stuff. And, and he has that nice scene with about, you know, it's about trading baseball cards and we don't, and it, you know, this isn't the game. And he said, that's exactly what this is. And it's a deadly game. That's kind of who he is. And how that developed with him and Tom Bishop ultimately is right. And, and, um, now that I've, I've been exploring these characters in, in a series of novel, Nathan Murray is allowed to come around, you know, later and realize that that rooftop where he made that really compelling speech, he was completely wrong. He was completely wrong. We do just trade lives and we do that sort of thing. Yeah. Are there any thoughts you want to share on like the origins of Harry Duncan, Charles Hark, or anybody like that? Uh, well, I think Harry Duncan is is a great character because he's like a lot of the guys that uh, were my friends, friends of my grandfather. Really, you know, they're they're in it for the mission. They love their work, but they don't want to make any waves. It's where most people people get to they, they they operate in the field then they get into the running operations because they're good at it and they run officers and agents and assets could be nathan muir but doesn't want him to take any risks and so he was a good contrast for that just you know the thing about it is it and this is i, I got this with meeting when i first met tony and john and mendez you know you hear about these and they were you know in in the in the soviet union and in, in moscow station and, and and you think spies you think this most unassuming he looks like a college professor he's an artist so he's a little bit there's some paint on his and his stuff she and she looks like a, a someone from your church and so it was they didn't capture harry just right eh, pretty close i always pictured him it's kind of funny because the actor's very good but i'd always pictured him being albert finney playing an american i'd always had harry duncan as an albert finney type character oh interesting yeah, yeah. sort of that kind of character because i wanted it to be Someone that really just goes to work every day. Cause so much of what intelligence and espionage is, is about going to work every day and, and, and doing it. You know, the stakes are higher, but you know, that's all relative. And so he was that guy. Um, Jeremy Harker is like so many people I met at Langley who would bring me through with the, with the weirdest thing is 
So, you know, they always make it with these, you know, they always portray it with the big boards in the rooms and it's very Jerry Bruckheimer and the, the big <laughs> TV. It's, you know, they got some of those rooms, but it's it's not really, everyone has five TVs going on in their office. What are they watching? They're watching some, they're watching MSNBC, Fox, and they're just watching the news like everyone else, CNN. They got that going, but it's these white corridors with doors that don't have anything on them. They got, there's not a name that doesn't say, oh, this is plans and evaluation. This is the map room. This is nothing. You don't know where you're going unless you know where you're going. And anytime I'd be there, no one would be in the corridors when I'd move through. And I spent a lot of time there. And, um, and what they have is next to each door is a little, little gray plaque. It was gray back, back then when I was there going there all the time with a number on it, number and some letters. Doesn't say what office it is. Just, just some code number and then a combi keypad with a swipe. And what was so amusing to me and just kind of the Alice in, in, uh, down the rabbit hole is, um, you never know what's behind these doors because they're all somewhat evenly spaced. Yet you go into one, it's just a very small office. You go into another and it opens up on a big, a big room, you know, like open source intelligence with TVs from every country going. And they're not as high tech as it looks. Everything's a little bit lower tech <laughs> than the movies make it. It's always lower tech. And then you'd walk by and every once in a while, there'd be a door open. And, you know, I remember walking by one thing and I look, I cut out of the corner of my eye. I see this door, a guy's reaching to close it, a guy dressed like I am, you know, with a coat and tie though, uh, had to tie, not me. But uh, he goes to shut the door and then standing in the room, looking at something on a big layout table is a guy in a uniform. I have no idea what country it was. You know, and he's got this, this, you know, this guy looks up with this beard and stuff and there the door closes. It was, it's, it's really quite, quite fun. And, and so I've always tried to write it uh, and in my books as well as trying to get that sort of feeling. If you're not supposed to be somewhere, you, you shouldn't be there. Then the other thing is you want to have lunch, you go down to the food court and they got a Sbarro and a Burger King and a, and a, you know, Carl's Jr. And, um, and then all the people in those uniforms, they're all, they all have clearance. But it's like being at any American mall, you know, and I, I you know, I, I found that kind of fun. We built that set uh, for the agency because I thought that that's great. It's just not, you know, you go downstairs and there's queue. Did get to go downstairs once to the perf- perfumery um, where they have people working on scents. They get, they, you know, duplicating different weird scents, you know, and they, they had to, and I used it in one of my episodes of the agency where they had to forge an old document and they had to get, you know, the smell of yak urine from Tibet, Oh wow. you know, and, yeah. the, and they have the people that do this sort of thing. That, that's all fascinating. The, I spent a lot of time with the technical service as well. That's what Tony and Jana had, had run, run it and had been heads of departments there. Um, fascinating people. What was the origin of Muir's love of scotch? <laughs> that was interesting. That came from a conversation I had with a, an officer who, uh, you know, I said, where did the, I said the exact opposite question. Wait, I'm waiting for the martinis. Where are the martinis? And, and he, <laughs> he gave me that line. He'd, he'd served in West Germany and Berlin. And so it had to go in there. The best part of that story though is, so I wrote the line and I didn't come up with the line. It was given to me. Most of my good lines are stuff real people have said. I'm, I'm not that clever with, with dialogue, <laughs> but one of the, I can write a good, good emotional scene though. I'm good at that. But uh, the clever lines, usually someone said to me and I just, I'm like a, a sponge. So I, that, the movie comes out and it, it's received fairly well. It's a pretty big hit. And one day I get a FedEx delivery and I wasn't expecting anything and it's fairly big. And so I go, oh, this is neat. 
I open it up and it's this beautiful oak presentation box and it's glass window and it's a bottle of Johnny Walker, 40 year old scotch. I don't think they sell it. They don't sell it. Yeah. And it, it was numbered and the head of the distillery wrote and said, you've done more for the scotch business than anyone, any of our advertising in 20 years. Um, <laughs> he goes, thank you for, for, for getting rid of the martini and giving it over to scotch where it belongs or something like that. I still have it somewhere. It, it's lovely. <laughs> it's a really lovely thing. I'd like to drink the scotch, um, except that it's, it's kind of special just where it is. And I don't drink anymore. So, um, but yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> That that was it. It it it, yeah. it was a lovely gift. Yeah. Well, that line worked on me. I'm a Scotch drinker. I love uh, yeah. a drink called oh. Monkey Shoulder. That's my favorite. Oh yeah. Moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was my my drink of choice for many years. I uh, I just I think everyone has their ration. Their like their ration of of like my ration of Scotch. I used it up a long time ago. I I I drank it all early. So um, I, what I used to like to do was the Macallan Cast Draw. Yeah. I I like that quite a bit. That and the What's the other one? It doesn't matter. But I'd like the cast draws where I could I could cut them with water or not. But it got to the point where I just pour it just straight and you know, what do you need to put water in yeah. this for? You know, what do you need ice for? It's, yeah, it's sort yeah, of like, yeah. you know, and then since it didn't affect me, I thought, this is really ridiculous. This is I, I had never gotten any trouble or had a problem, you know, where I couldn't work or anything. But it's just I drank it like water and it seems like this is probably not healthy. I have a younger wife and I'd rather live longer than drink. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. No. Wise. Yeah, the scotch is it. it it's, I was happy to do it, and, and Johnny Walker and I suppose all the rest of them were pretty happy too. Yeah, that's cool. Actually, one one line uh, that I love in the film, and I, it may not—I don't know if, it, if it, I'm assuming it is yours. So forgive me if it's not. When did Noah build the ark? Before the rain, before the rain. I love that bit. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, that one. That one was mine. That Excellent. was uh, yeah, the, yeah. The uh, you know Muir's character, as I envisioned him, was. Uh, he, you know, he, he'd work in the field, but he'd also do recruitment and he was a university professor and, um, he was a professor of, of, uh, here he is, as he exists in the books. Um, when he's not doing what he's doing, he's a professor of philosophy and mythology. So he has a, he has a nice, uh, so the Bible and, and all those other books, you know, from the ancients and everything else, he, he likes to refer to that kind of stuff. So I was glad that that remained in, in the script. Yeah, there's there's a CIA guy I used to follow on Twitter. I don't know if he's still around or not, but he used to use that in his bio. I think he oh, called right. himself Before the Rain. Um, and uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I think he's still out there somewhere. I haven't seen him in a few years on Twitter, but uh, he used to be quite prolific a few years ago. So I think a few agency people like that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good one. There's some there's choice. Now, one line that I, I, I loved that wasn't mine, I think it, who was it? What's his name? John Lee Hancock, the director and writer, he he worked with Redford on set. He didn't get any credit. He just he did it. Redford was very conscious, uh, self-conscious of having to do too much narration and and too much. He, he said, I'm the strong, silent type. Newman was the guy that would do all the talking. And so he had to do something. But he came up with a line about the horse. You know, why would I shoot? Why would I sh- let you shoot? And that was one of my favorites. I've actually used that. He, he was gracious enough to let me use that again. And 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 it plays into a lot of Muir's backstory. You know, exactly where was that farm? What's the story of the horse and and the and, and that sort of thing? But that was that was one. Uh, but I was very fortunate because it went back. It went astray. That script went astray. And Redford continued to have faith in it. But Beacon ended up 
bringing in a, a Dutch film director, a young guy um, who'd won a couple Academy Awards for short film and then for foreign film. And he saw himself as the next Orson Welles. He had the attitude of Orson Welles as, as well. And, and did, I don't think he works anymore, at least in Hollywood. Um, and he didn't do spy game. Um, but he, he said he, he, I had a meeting with him and, uh, he said, well, you've got this all wrong. You've got everything. And this isn't how spies operate. He said, I read this book, this book and this book. And I didn't have the heart to tell him. I said, those are put out by the office of information for people to think that's how spies work. The CIA, it, it's not immune to letting, telling you what to think about him. And, and I go, it's not, you know, whatever you do it. And, and he made it into a, Sort of a two-man play that took all took place in a Warsaw apartment with a pinhole camera spying on a Polish general. That's what it became. And it was that movie for two or three years, maybe longer. And so I was out. And, and then one day Tony Scott called me and said, Michael, I'm doing doing your film with got Brad Pitt to play with Redford. And I'm like, Tony, that's great. And I, I knew Tony a little bit, but I pitched a lot and, and tried to, uh, no, for a number of years, Ridley Scott and I tried to get a project off the ground and uh, about uh, Stanley and the Eman Pasha and the, uh, you know, the great explorer Stanley. And we didn't, we didn't get it off the ground, but, but I knew Tony and I was very happy that he called me, but I, Tony, it's yeah. It's not the script I wrote. I'm glad you like that, that script and are going to do it. And I, I can't wait to see it, but it's not mine. No, you don't understand the only way that Redford and I were going to do this is to go back to your original. And that's what they did. And uh, except for John Lee coming on set, it was pretty much that. And um, and that it, mostly it involved cutting down my trimming my script. We we took out the Lebanon stuff was about the Marine Corps barracks bombing, and all of it. What I wanted to do was use all actual operations that I'd heard about from a different angle that maybe people knew. And so everything in there is is based on that sort of thing. Uh, but they 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 winnowed that down to that. Let's not do the whole Green Beach and all all that. There was a whole section in Grenada, uh, and uh, it really went what I wanted to do because I wasn't all that interested in doing a run and, and run a guy in the field running around with a gun. I didn't um, and go see James Bond; those are fun. I wanted to look at how these people feel and what makes them tick. And so the Cold War seemed to be on the wane. When I wrote Spy Game, the War on Terror hadn't begun. And but terrorism was creeping up, so that's why you get to to Lebanon. And what I wanted to do was look at real classic things. Cyprus was another uh, another the partitioning of Cyprus was another thing I was fascinated by. So all this stuff was in all these episodes were in, uh, and then Rosewood, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that was really a, a big deal in, in the script. So it needed to be it needed to be trimmed down. It would have been a, a, a two and a half hour movie if we we used all of it. They they did take out the books we'll get into in a second, but it does reappear. I guess it isn't in, in the prequel, um, really sort of between the airfield in Lebanon in the film, Brad Pitt and says, I'm, I'm done. And uh, China, they do meet again. They do have a, a, a confrontation and that gets into, into Brad Pitt's personal life. And, and um, I won't give it away because it's in the book. But his relationship with Elizabeth Hadley, you know, is something much bigger than Muir ever suspected in Lebanon. And his reason for having her kidnapped um, is entirely different than they, they left out her whole story in, in film. So really. And so anyway, it was to take those episodes of the Cold War, look at it from a different angle and try and track what that does to the spirit of a man. It was about if you're sanctioned in your life to be deceitful. 
Everything you, you were, your job is to be a liar and it's to be everything to everyone. You, you're out recruiting, you, you become Bishop's father if he needs a father. And you, you do that. You sell people their version of Disneyland. You, you know, that's what they told me. We offer them Disney. What's their Disneyland? We give it to them and we make yeah. them feel special. Yeah. But a lot of them just like taking the hat off. A lot of them don't know how to take the masks off. And they're they're sanctioned to deceit, and it's hard to separate that when you get home. And it's hard to find out, looking in the mirror, you see all those other people that you play, but you start to lose focus on that person that you are. And so I wanted to see how the events of the Cold War, because Muir tracks the whole thing, it, it, you know, he, his career spans the whole Cold War until you get to the War on Terror. What, how that develops and how his character, his actual humanity changes and how it, his relationship with Tom Bishop actually brings him to the final, you know, it's that long range of the bullet. He finally gets to be the Bishop. Muir himself sets himself up as the target to take Bishop out. He becomes the target to the CIA. Parker is, is those guys you meet that, that glad hands you through the corridors and he's a career guy. It's, <laughs> it's what, what moves my career up is, is what I'm going to do. That's policy. And, and I got to say what policy is. I knew a lot of guys like that at, at the CIA and, and um, uh, anyway. But I think most people have somebody like that in their job. That's, that's one of the interesting, very relatable things about the film too, is there are characters like that. Um, obviously not quite that level, but in any office, there's, there's somebody like all those people. And I think that's what's so great. Yeah, it's, it's, they're not, they're regular people. Yeah. That, that's the thing about it is they're no different than, than us. It's just they do a, a unique, a very unique job. And, and again, a lot of it isn't the, you don't have a whole career filled with gunfights and, and chases and everything else. You have a career of, you know, let's say it spans 25 years. And what, what amount of that time is actually doing that big thing? It happens to you once. You, you, you build into characters and stuff to give it give it more action and, and drama of course yeah, yeah were you happy with the film i was happy with the film yeah I, I i felt that in in trimming they didn't service tom and elizabeth and muir's real perspective about why he is so against that i i felt that that was a little short because i wanted to really see what what makes their heart tick what makes these guys and, and you know i didn't like the Redford spent a lot of time saying, I don't drink, I don't smoke. I can't be divorced. I have a, a <laughs> reputation and a, and, a, and a persona to do. And, and luckily it wasn't my job. That's why I'm never going to be a director and never chose to, to coax him into going a little bit with it. He didn't want to do that. And, you know, Bob Redford, you know, when, when I knew him personally, which would be around the time of a river runs through it, you know, he would smoke one cigarette, cigarette to the next. You know, but I can't smoke in the film. No. I can't smoke in the film. So the, the, the thing <laughs> yeah. with the cigarettes works real well, except he's not a smoker. So why would anyone buy that he left his cigarette? You know, Bob, you don't smoke. Or Nathan, you don't smoke. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's little details. It's little details. But what's kind, of, what, what's kind of funny is when I sold it, because no one had bought the film, no one had bought the script, when Beacon purchased that screenplay, they, wanted, they didn't want to pay huge seven figures like all my originals used to go for. They wanted to get get it at a good price. And I, I couldn't say no, because no one was bidding against it. No, no one was bidding against it. And they could offer me whatever, you know, whatever they wanted. I'm picturing that Baywatch scene as you, you're telling me this because he's a- <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The, uh, uh, and, and so 
Well, the deal I made is I said, well, I, I lopped this off this book that I'd written, you know, which really tells mm -hmm. it, it. It's the two stories. It's how was Mir recruited? Why did Mir become Mir? How did he become that? Who was his Rob? Who was who was Mir's Nathan Mir? Right. And then it's it's him recruiting Bishop. So it's a story of, in a sense, two fathers and one son or two fathers, two sons, kind of like that. And so they said, well, the book wasn't published. I'm like, I'd never sent it to a publisher because I was running out of money. I had to write the script. And so they said, get, tell you what, you just keep it. Great. Perfect. And um, <laughs> that was, yeah. So now with streaming, you know, the, the rebooting everything, mm. Universal comes along and, and, and hey, what about Spy Game? Let's pull it out of the vault. They call Beacon and Beacon goes, you got to call Beckner. He, we, we're only allowed to do, if we did a sequel, we can't even do that. We're only allowed to reshoot the original script. That's all we own. And so now the great thing is, is I'm great friends with those people. And so I'm like, yeah, let's do this together. And, and so, so we're developing a series. It's based on the book. So the three novels, there's Mirror's Gambit, Bishop's Endgame, and Aiken and Check. And they're a plug here. They're available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble or anywhere else uh, online and in bookstores. Um, Mirror's Gambit is that first part. It's really the the juice. It it goes right up. It takes place 48 hours before the events of the film. Um, so you don't need to have ever seen the film to re enjoy the book. Um, but it's the same dramatic structure as Spy Game. Is Nathan Mirrors being interrogated by a character named Russell Aiken. He had a larger part in the film. He only has one line, I think, in, in the movie. The character is just a, a special extra. So Russell Aiken, he was the guy that Muir recruited before Tom Bishop. And for some reason, Muir felt he'd be better in the general counsel's office as an attorney, as a lawyer for the CIA, rather than in the field. All he wanted to be, like he's, you know, he's recruited out of college. He wants to be a spy. He wants to be in the field. So he's hugely jealous of Tom Bishop. And he sent in when Nathan Muir's mentor, retired CIA officer, Charlie March, who's a, you know, a legend is assassinated. His, his boat blows up. I'm not giving anything away. That's page one. His last words are about Nathan Muir. And so the CIA is like, shoot, the FBI is going to, you know, the guy's written a, a, a bestseller about the CIA where everyone's going to know, and they're going to come to you and you've got too many secrets. We got to shut you up. And so they send the lawyer out to do it. Who's got an ax to grind against Nathan Muir anyway. So Nathan Muir has to go, well, you know, because they want to know, did you kill him? And why would you have killed him? He's like, I didn't kill him. You know, and, he, and I'm going to explain to you how I, you know, how I did. And so it goes back to their whole, his relationship when Nathan Muir is recruited in, in the, during the Korean war. And so it's the same sort of structure as spy game, but it follows the first half of the cold war mm. all the way into uh, the fall of the Berlin wall um, goes through Angola. I'd get my Cyprus back in there and, and the Congo, the assassination of Patrice uh, Lumumba. And really it tracks that story. It takes us up to spy game mm. and it will change the way you ever view spy game again, because you, when you finish that book, you go, Oh, what I thought I was watching wasn't what I'm watching at all. It really fundamentally changes the movie spy game. Um, then the second book, Bishop's Endgame takes place 10 years after the Redford leaves Langley. Mm. The scene they cut out, and this was my biggest disappointment. That scene I was telling you about where they have a confrontation again, yes. where Tom Bishop tells Nathan Muir, if I ever find out that you did this to Elizabeth, I'm going to kill you. The next time I see you, I will kill you. And that was sort of pivotal for the drama because it changes the way. Then you're going, 
Why the hell is he rescuing this guy? Because he did do it, and he is going to kill. Bishop's going to come kill him. So it's 10 years later, and they've avoided that, and they've avoided each other. Muir's retired and gets away with with his with all his hanky-panky. and <laughs> Operation dinner out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dinner out. And Tom Bishop is the second book. He's in Kosovo. Mm. And, uh, and, and he's, he's gone rogue. No one knows where he is, but it takes place at a time where the advent of Al Qaeda is coming and where it's, you're having this fundamentalist radical Islam developing, you know, where it's going to develop. It's going to develop mm-hmm. in those Muslim countries in, in Southeast Asia with obviously the Middle East and, and, um, you know, the, the rest of, uh, what would you call that central Europe or you know, the Baltic area and all that stuff. And that's sort of starting to grow. And so that takes place right after or right around the time of the Al Qaeda uh, summit in Kuala Lumpur, where basically they decide to, that they're going to go forward with, well, they're going to bomb the USS Cole and they're going to come up with something a lot bigger and, and attack the U S um, with nine 11. So that follows that and the pivot from the cold war, into the war on terror. And then the third book follows directly after that with Russell Aiken, who he's the narrator of all the books. He's telling their, in a sense, their stories and his own, where he's defected to Cuba. He's kind of a hapless guy. He, he thinks a lot more, he thinks he's owed and he's not. And, and, and Muir loves him like a son and he doesn't really see it. And Muir tolerates that. He's quite, he, He's a bizarre guy. He's he's kind of funny, and and uh, he has a very skewed perception of things. Gets a lot of stuff wrong that uh, leads him into into sort of maybe creating worse situations for himself than than he needs to. And so it follows him to Cuba, where he's kind of backed into a corner where he needs to defect to Cuba in order to save uh, the woman that he loves, uh, who's a CIA Cuban American CIA officer. But knowing that in doing that, he's never going to see her again. But but each book follows really Tom Bishop and Nathan Muir and sort of, I didn't write these as movies because they're not movies. Mm. They're, they're, they're real psychological examinations of these characters. The first book looks at, you, you have lived a life of deceit. Two men, Russell Aiken and, and Nathan Muir, have lived fully lives of deceit and what that does to your own moral compass and, and, and how you live with yourself because you've done some bad things in the name of, of being sanctioned. The second one, okay, someone who's lived a life of lies, how do these characters, Bishop, Muir, and Aiken, how do they perceive their own identity? What's my identity? If I've spent all my time being someone else, is that who I am? I mean, you have your driver's license and your birth certificate, but appearance is reality. Rather than appearance versus reality, you've lived the appearance, that is your reality, and how you square that with yourself, how you square Sort of what is my identity? Is it this person inside me that I know that I am? Or is it the person that I have been and lived? Mm. And then the final one is how a life of lies and fraudulent identity affect the transfer of information. And the second, one, the third one finally gets into information theory and intelligence because information is what the spy business is all about. It's all about the manipulation, transfer, use of, theft of information. And so how... If you are completely a liar, you live a life of lies. If your identity is something that's in contrast to who you see yourself on your in, on the inside, your identity is false, and your business is information. What does that do? Just you're by it by touching information, 
How does that change the information? So the th third one gets in a little bit into quantum physics and philosophy, but they're kind of funny too. They're a little bit uh, sarcastic. Russell Aiken's kind of a delightful narrator. You laugh at him pretty much the whole time, but he's an earnest, good guy deep down. He's just his own worst enemy and he makes some problems for himself and all the rest of them. Excellent. <laughs> and so those come out in September. I'm very happy with them. I've started, the reviews are starting to come in and they're, they're all excellent. And I'm even more happy that Beacon, um, they'd had Mirror's Gambit because that's what they bought or didn't buy, but that's what they knew was from Spiking. And then reading the others. And so they're basing this new series three seasons, or maybe it'll be four, as we've talked now, on these three books. And so so that's kind of where it's all going. So these are sort of tie-in. The television series will sort of take out most of the philosophy and uh, and science and, you know, study of consciousness, if you will, and just pretty much follow plot and, and character. But, but because it's all based in character, they'll be more like Spy Game than like Jack Reacher or some such thing, or, or even the top fancy Jack Ryan. It's, it's not running in guns. It's, it's more the psychological and spiritual nature of espionage. I think we've covered a lot there, but is there anything else you wanted to talk about or wanted to add before we do wrap up today? What else? I, I got a few more books coming out. Yeah. Might as well pitch that. I have Berlin Mesa, which is uh, World War II espionage uh, set in the American West. It's sort of a, a hybrid Western uh, spy story. Mm. I always was always fascinated with, uh, again, it's someone that I met as a kid who was a German American, but he'd been a POW in, uh, in the United States. And what a lot of Americans don't know, and other, I guess the rest of the world, is we had 400,000 POWs in the U.S. And there were more escapes from our prison camps than your great escape in, in you know, Lufstalig, whatever it was. Mm. And so uh, that's a, quite a good thriller. Um, it's sort of cowboys versus Nazis. It's, it's, it's more fun. It's less intellectual than the spy game books, but based on a nice curl of history. And then I have three volumes of Civil War history that are, that are coming out. That, that's my other passion. Yeah. It, it started, this was very strange. I'd started, I wanted to write a two-man play about Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, and the four times they met during the course of their life. Most people think it's two, the surrender and the day after, but they met in the Mexican War, and they met a few weeks before Robert E. Lee died at the White House. Uh, he went and visited Grant when Grant was president. No one knows that that 15-minute conversation. Lee's son wrote about what his dad talked about before and after, as did Grant's son. And as a writer, that's just great. You get it. What was that 15 minutes? Yeah. Because the nation pivots right after that. It's the same day the golden spike is pounded into our transnational railroad and America opens up east and west. But they needed the north and south to reunify. Anyway, okay, I'm gonna write a play. It's 90 minutes. This is easy. Hardest thing I ever did. And I started to dig in and I thought, oh my gosh, this is fascinating stuff. It was around the time I started it around the time of Bush Gore. And we had all the election things and the hanging chads and this. Mm. And everyone was saying, oh my God, we're gonna secede and the blue states should secede from the red states. And and I thought, you know, that secession stuff's pretty dangerous talk. We shouldn't mm. have it. Our country's pretty divided. Not realizing that 20 years later you know <laughs> yeah. okay now it's divided and it could get worse but yeah. so i started so i started working with a guy named john simon uh who was the founder of the presidential library for grant and he had me develop a little further i worked with ultimately over 20 years i worked with every top historian in the u.s um writing at universities or, or publishing themselves for the smithsonian institution uh ed bears who passed away a couple years ago he was a historian emeritus for the uh, United States government 
And um, he was one of my uh, mentors. And so I ended up writing the greatest unmade miniseries ever. It's, <laughs> it's 12 episodes. Yeah. It's three volumes. But I did it in concert with all the his- Civil War historians. Mm. And it's basically, again, it's not about the, the you get enough battle in, in the thing. There's always a battle. But it's about the relationships between these people. And they were. it was so helpful to have these historians would just flood me with stuff. They go, we could never write about what, you know, Ulysses Grant and Julia Grant, you know, said when they were dating or said across the dinner table or what McClellan and his wife were up to or what their children, Sherman's children did. And so I wrote the story of these families, of these band of generals. And um, anyway, it's for another time, but those are coming out. Those I'm offering in paperback at just cost. It's it's American history. I've mm. Really, it, it's the work of a lot of historians that informed it. At the end of the day, I realized I didn't really write much of this because I just put it into a format. And I'm fairly proud of those. And those can be found. My website's michaelfrostbeckner.com. Mm-hmm. And that's the same as my Instagram, my Twitter. Yeah. And I'm kind of excited to be moving into, I have one one film I'm doing, but uh, moving into into really what I started out to do back in, I don't know, when I graduated in 1985. And and, uh, and Tom Boyle is uh, happy that I finally did what he thought I should have been doing the whole yeah. time. And then I'm writing books. So, and that's kind of where I am. Excellent. Excellent. Michael, thank you so much for all your time today. It's been really great chatting with you. I've learned a lot about Spy Game and uh, been a fascinating insight to all these things. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lovely morning. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 